I wonder if you ever have those moments of anxiety, fearing that you may not be okay with God. If your trust is in Jesus, let me urge you to look at his perfect life and ask whether he is a sufficient sacrifice for your sin and what must be your answer. Well, he is. Of course he is. How could he not be? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, let's start right there. What was it about Jesus that makes him the perfect sacrifice for sin? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, the sacrifice that was required was a perfect sacrifice, a blemish-free sacrifice. And Matthew is at pains to show us that Jesus is morally, ethically flawless. He's totally righteous before God the Father, never done any wrong, always been faithful to his calling. That's so much the burden of these early chapters of Matthew's gospel. And Matthew is teaching us that, that we might be confident that when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross as the flawless sacrifice. And that means for us that he can actually pay the price of our sin. We can trust him as Savior. And when we understand that, I think one of the natural results or outcomes of that would be a confidence or an assurance that our sin really has been dealt with. That's right. We can be totally assured that our sin is dealt with if our trust is in Jesus because he is the perfect Savior, the flawless sacrifice. Well, we're going to look at that today from the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Grab a Bible, join us there as we continue our message, The Faithful Son. Here is Jonathan. Well, this account of Jesus' time in the wilderness shows us why the Father is so pleased with him. He's the totally sinless, totally righteous Son. He is faithful under trial, and he resists temptation. That's the big point that Matthew's wanting to kind of draw out and drive home. It is a showcase of Jesus' sinlessness and righteousness. But we still ask, we still need to focus the question, why does that matter? I think that as we zoom out from the incident and try and place these verses in their context in Matthew and in the wider story of Scripture, we can see that the righteousness of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus under trial and temptation, It matters for many reasons, actually, and for two in particular. It matters because having conquered temptation and been faithful in the wilderness, Jesus is shown to be both our righteous representative and our righteous substitute. Now, I want to explain both those ideas and just draw them out a little, but that's where we're going. That's where we're heading. Jesus is our righteous representative. He is our righteous substitute. Let's start with number one. Jesus is our righteous representative. I don't know if you all noticed and heard, but we had a stunning win against Tampa Bay Lightning on Thursday night. We beat them 5-2. We're not going to talk about what happened in Buffalo yesterday. But we had a great night on Thursday. Now, I say we beat Tampa Bay, and I think you know what I mean by that. I mean that our team was the victorious team. The Senators beat Tampa Bay. The truth is, of course, that I wouldn't survive five minutes on the ice in an NHL game, and nor would most of you. I hope you don't mind my saying that. But nonetheless, we are all happy to say that we won. We're happy to share in the Senators' victory. And the Sens are happy to share their victory with us, too, because after all, they are our team. 
They represent Ottawa. They represent us. If they win, we've won. We may never have put on our hockey skates, but if they beat Tampa Bay, the victory belongs to the whole city. They're our team. They're our representatives. That idea of a representative acting on our behalf and of all of us sharing in the victory of a representative, it is a key idea in Scripture as we come to understand the work of the Lord Jesus. And it's a familiar idea in everyday life. Say, for instance, you ended up having to go to court for something, and you hired a lawyer, and your lawyer won your case before the judge. What would you tell your friends on the phone that evening when they ask what happened? You'd say, we won. And it's true, you did. Your representative won your case for you. If at some point in the future we as a nation go to war and our soldiers fight for us and then win the battle and win the war, when all is done and we see the announcement on the evening news, what will you and I say? We will say, we won. We may never have gone within 5,000 miles of the battlefield. We may never have lifted a weapon in our lives. Our closest contact with the war may have been the CBC News, but if our soldiers win, we win. And we win because they represent us. And here in chapter 4, in this account of the wilderness experience, the wilderness trial, the wilderness temptation, what Matthew is showing us above all other things is the story of our representative winning the battle with sin. It is the story of our representative going into the heat of battle and coming out victorious on our behalf. We've seen already that the symbolism pointing back to Israel in the wilderness is very rich and it's very intentional in this chapter. Israel failed in the wilderness, but now the representative of the people of God, well, he succeeds. He comes out victorious. That's why this 40 days is not some other period of time. The 40 is very important. It is recalling the 40 years that Israel spent. That's why Jesus goes out of his way to quote scripture that refers originally to Israel's wilderness wanderings. Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 6 again in verse 10. It's all pointing back, referring back, and reflecting on the wilderness experience of Israel. It's not because those three verses from Deuteronomy are the three magic verses we should quote if we're ever in a tussle with the devil. Jesus quotes those verses to sum up the key lessons that Israel failed to learn but should have learned in the wilderness and the lessons that Jesus will now model and live out in faithfulness before us. But there's something broader going on here as well. At an even deeper level, Jesus is actually living out the story of all humanity. It goes beyond Israel. We're really going back all the way to the Garden of Eden, to the temptation mentioned earlier to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit that was pleasing to the eye and good to eat. The temptation to listen to a word from Satan and block our ears to the Word of God. We can hear the echoes of the serpent in the garden. As we read verse 3, the tempter came to him, he slithered up, and he said, if you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Take the food, eat it, no harm's going to come, only good. Listen to me, don't worry about what God has said, just trust me. But where Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, 
Jesus turns back to the Word of God, and He says, it is written. And those are, of course, the words of faithfulness. They are the words of victory. And so here in these verses, Jesus is presented to us as the new Adam, the faithful Israel. Back in chapter 3, we saw Jesus identify with that group of repentant sinners who went out for baptism as He entered the waters of baptism alongside them and alongside us. And having identified with all the crowds, the needy crowds, the repentant crowds, the spotlight then falls on Jesus very directly at the end of the chapter. The Spirit descends, the voice says, this is my Son whom I love. And so as our representative now, the one who has identified with needy sinners, with failed sinners in the waters of baptism, Jesus goes out on His own into the wilderness on our behalf as our representative. The whole people of God went out into that wilderness once before, but it didn't end well. So now the representative goes out on his own, and he faces that battle with sin. And then having done that, and having conquered sin, well, he'll come back in the following verses and call people now to follow him, the victorious representative, to join him, verse 19, come, follow me. Come, be part of this faithful new humanity. Come, join me, be part of the faithful and the victorious people of God. And so now, we who belong to Jesus, who have heard the call to follow Him, we look back at these 40 days in the wilderness, and we say, there is our victory over sin. There is where the battle was won for us and on our behalf. Here our team was victorious. Here our representative won the fight. Here is where sin was conquered for you and for me. I guess some here will do quite a lot of travel for work, and maybe you qualify for special status with the airline elite or super elite or super duper elite or whatever it is. I never fly quite enough to get that, but I remember a few years ago going on a long journey with someone who had top tier standing with the airline. And of course, as we checked in, he got bumped up to business class right away. I had absolutely zero standing, no air miles in my account. They didn't even bother looking at my loyalty card. But because I was traveling with this friend, I got bumped up too. I was super elite by association. And I have to say, it was a really nice moment for me. <laughs> Having so many times done that walk of shame through first and business, back to coach, you know the walk of shame. You know, you're lugging your bags through business, your duffel bag, trying to knock, not to knock anyone on the head as they're sipping their orange juice and reading their newspaper in their comfy chair, walking by them as they pretend not to notice you, but they've got that little smile on their face, <laughs> going back to your cramped seat. Anyway, but now I was the guy in the chair with the little smile on my face, and I have to say I enjoyed that quite a lot. <laughs> I was pretty grateful to my friend for sharing his status with me for the day. The Bible teaches us that if we belong to Jesus Christ, we share His righteous status, His victory over sin, His pleasing standing before the Father. We share in all that, and it belongs to us, and we enjoy the benefits of everything that He has achieved. The default mode of the human heart is to think that we need to earn our standing before God. We need to make some big victories over sin. We need to put in the miles and build up our accounts. We need to prove ourselves to Him. And maybe that's how you tend to think this morning. Maybe you're actually here at church today because you want to do that very thing. 
you need to build up some credit with God, and what better way than clocking up some hours at church on a Sunday morning? But our passage here this morning reminds us that what matters first and foremost is not what we do, but who we know. We'll never do enough to earn our way into God's good books. We'll never do enough to impress Him. We'll never do enough to right the wrongs in our lives. But here's the good news. Jesus has done everything that is needed. And the key thing, the thing that matters, the thing that is important above all other things, is to make for absolute certain that we are with Him that we belong to Him, that He is our representative before God the Father, that we share in His victory and we share in His righteousness. Pretty soon, Jesus is going to go out in verse 19 and say to those fishermen, come, follow me. And that's His call to each one of us. We need to follow Him. We need to trust Him. We need to belong to Him if we're to share in His victory. And so I wonder this morning, have you ever done that? Have you ever before understood that that is the one thing that's needed, the crucial thing, the only thing? Many of us will, of course, have done that. But I guess that quite a number here who are followers of Jesus, who belong to Jesus, will be aware that this has been a week of tremendous failure in your efforts to follow Him. We failed to obey Him. We failed to honor Him as we should honor Him. And we look back and we realize this has been a week of testing and a week of temptation for us. And it has been a week, perhaps, of ugly failure. Perhaps for some, it's been a week of catastrophic failure. And for those in that kind of a place, here this morning, perhaps feeling full of shame and full of guilt, the encouragement of Matthew chapter 4 and the call of Matthew chapter 4 is to look once more at the victory that belongs to you and belongs to me if we belong to Christ. Our personal record this week, it may be horrific. It may be very ugly indeed. But here is the good news. Jesus's record in the wilderness is flawless. It is perfect. It is glowingly holy and righteous. It was a perfect victory. It was a stunning success. And if we belong to Jesus, that victory belongs to us. And so, because of His victory, we stand before the Father this morning as an acceptable people, despite all our personal failures. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called The Faithful Son, and we've been looking at how Jesus is a righteous representative. In just a moment, we're going to get back to the message and see how he's also our righteous substitute. So I hope you will stay with us. By the way, if you ever miss a broadcast, you join us late, you want to go back and listen to a program again, you can always do that by coming to our website. It is EncounterTheTruth.org. And there you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. And if you simply go to your favorite app store, you can look for it there. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org to listen online, or you can listen with the Encounter the Truth app. Well, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Jesus is our righteous 
representative. That's the first great point of significance here. And that's the first reason why this story matters so much. And here's the second one as we finish. Jesus is our righteous substitute. That point is really quite closely related to the first. They are overlapping ideas logically, but it helps us, I think, to consider each in its own right. A Bible scholar once described one of the Gospels as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. The language of the passion, of course, refers to the cross of Christ and to the story of his death. You think of that movie from a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, the story of his death. And in calling the gospel story a passion narrative with an extended introduction, the scholar's point was that the whole gospel story is really building up very intentionally toward the cross. So what the gospel writers include in their narrative, they include very significantly because it is going to help us understand the cross better. And I think that is a very helpful observation. I think it's true for all the Gospels to some extent. And it means that it's worth asking of every story and every incident, every aspect of the teaching of Jesus recorded throughout the Gospel stories, each miracle that he does, each encounter that he has with a sinner, it's always worth asking, how does this particular aspect of the story shed light on the cross? How does it help me to understand Jesus' work at Calvary more deeply and more richly? Now, that question always bears fruit. I'd encourage you to ask it as you read through the Gospels. And I think it really helps us here. It's a highly relevant question when we look at the wilderness temptations. How does this incident in Matthew chapter 4 shed light on the cross that is to come in a few chapters? Why is it important that Jesus went through this particular experience and responded in this particular way when we come to understand the cross? Well, what do you think? Why is this incident and this account significant as we look forward to the cross? Remember that the cross gathers up the symbolism of the Old Testament sacrificial system very explicitly. And in that system, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was absolutely essential that the animal sacrifices brought to the Lord would be perfect sacrifices, unblemished sacrifices. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus, as our sacrifice for sin, was a lamb without blemish or defect. God requires a perfect sacrifice for sin, an unblemished sacrifice. And the wilderness incident shows us that Jesus approaches the cross without moral blemish, without defect, without any record of sin. He has been put through the mill of temptation, 40 days and a direct personal assault by the devil, and he has come out victorious and unstained. Jesus is able to act as our substitute at the cross because he is the perfect and unblemished sacrifice. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's what was needed, a righteous sacrifice for an unrighteous people to bring us to God. And that's exactly what Jesus was, and that's exactly what he was able to do. 
I was doing up the seatbelts in the car for one of the children the other day, and I was just reflecting on the fact that we really do put a lot of trust and confidence in that system, in that little piece of equipment. We just assume that if we should get in an accident, it's going to do what it's meant to do. It's going to lock up and just hold the person in place. But what if we got that wrong? What if our confidence is misplaced? The point is even more dramatically true, isn't it, in, in aircraft safety systems, when our whole ability to stay up in the air rests on that technology in the plane. Or think of the parachute in a stunt diver's backpack. That thing better open as it should, or else the diver's in a lot of trouble. Now, for the Christian person who understands clearly that our eternity is riding on the cross of Christ, we want to be absolutely certain that the cross is foolproof, that it has achieved what it needs to achieve for our eternity to be secure. The whole of Scripture tells us, the whole shape of Scripture really, that the thing needed for the cross to save us is the offering of a perfect sacrifice, a sinless substitute. And Matthew chapter 4, well, it reassures us that Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the substitute that we need that will guarantee the effectiveness of our salvation. He is sinless. He is righteous. And so when He offers Himself to the Father in our place at Calvary, we know for certain that His sacrifice is acceptable. We know that He has saved us. And that's a wonderful reassurance for us if we're anxious about our standing before the Father. We need only to look again at the righteous life of Jesus, and we ask ourselves, would the Father ever reject us when His perfect Son, His righteous Son, has died in our place? Yes, our sin may be dreadful. It is dreadful. It may be unspeakable. But this son, this faithful, obedient, righteous son, well, he died in my place, and his, his sacrifice, well, it's acceptable, and it's pleasing to the Father. I wonder if you ever have those moments of anxiety, fearing that you may not be okay with God, those moments of concern that the cross somehow won't cover you. If your trust is in Jesus this morning, let me urge you to look at His perfect life in Matthew chapter 4. Look at His stunning victory over temptation, over the devil in the wilderness, and ask whether He is a sufficient sacrifice for your sin. Ask yourself that question, and what must be your answer? Well, He is. Of course He is. How could He not be? The believer's salvation rests upon the righteousness of Christ, and Matthew chapter 4 is here to show us that our salvation in Him is entirely secure. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because I dot, 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 because I've served, because I've given, because I've lived an upright life? Well, those answers they'll never do. But Matthew points us here to the one answer that each one of us needs to know and to trust and to believe. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because Jesus. Because Jesus lived a righteous life. Because Jesus is perfectly righteous. Because Jesus, the righteous one, well, he is my representative. 
and he is my substitute. I'm with him and his victory is mine. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, The Faithful Son. Taking a look today at Matthew chapter 4 and the first 11 verses there. By the way, we're able to bring you Jonathan's teaching every day on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book from one of Jonathan's friends. It's called How Church Can Change Your Life. And in this book, the author Josh Moody tackles 10 of the most common questions about church, including why I should even go to church at all. If you want to find out more about this or give your gift, you can do that by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today. For Jonathan and for our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller, and I hope you'll join us next time.